Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Carlin Bowman. Carlin is a senior fellow and research coordinator at the American Enterprise Institute, where she studies trends in American public opinion on a wide variety of social and political topics. She's also the recipient of the Roper Center's 2020 Warren J. Matofsky Award for Excellence in Public Opinion Research. For our summer 2018 issue, Carlin wrote a terrific essay titled The Trouble with Polling. In her piece, Carlin took stock of the weaknesses and shortcomings of public polling in recent years. She argued that changes in both the polling industry and society more broadly have led to new challenges for pollsters. And she put forward a number of suggestions for how the polling industry might improve its models and regain the public's trust. Colin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Colin, before we dig into some of the problems you mentioned in your piece about what polling has experienced in the last few years, we want to start off with when did people notice this became a problem? Obviously, the 2016 election results were surprising because it seemed like the polls were suggesting that Hillary was going to win by a pretty big margin. That didn't happen. Was that really the first warning sign or were there warning signs before that? I know you also mentioned in your piece, there's been problems globally with polling. So just kind of talk to us a bit about when we started to notice that there was a real issue with polling. Well, in the modern era, I think you'd go back to 1992 to the election in Great Britain, where John Major surprised everyone by winning. And the pollsters at that point, they did a very significant review of the polls of what went wrong. And so we've been watching for all sorts of problems. We know that response rates have declined significantly, and it's harder and harder to create a sample that looks like America or looks like the electorate. And I keep wondering whether we can, we can continue to do that with response rates for even the best designed polls, polls such as Pew and Gallup are now at about 6%. And that's a very low level of response. Pollsters still feel pretty confident about what they're doing. They've changed methodology significantly, but we've been watching a lot of problems. A really dramatic example most recently came from Australia, where all of the polls, including the exit poll, predicted the wrong winner. (laughs) This is fairly recent. And so these polls are mounting not just here, but abroad. But you could actually go back to 1948 and talk about the polls in that particular election. Again, pollsters just assumed that opinions would not change during the month of October. (laughs) And we know that that's rarely true, particularly in in news cycles today. So you you can go back a long way to look at the problems with the polls and elections. Yeah. And I guess most recently, right, 2016 was the big one for the American poll industry. And you note in your piece that a lot of public polling organizations were very quick to do some very public postmortems, some soul searching and explain how they had gotten it so wrong. Within six months, for example, as you note in the piece, the American Association for Public Opinion Research released an analysis that celebrated the, quote, most accurate estimates of the popular vote since 1936, but also conceded, quote, that it had had a historically bad year for state level polling. In your piece, you write about the report that it cited a number of reasons for polling problems, including late decisions by voters in key states who broke disproportionately for Donald Trump, as well as the overrepresentation in polls of college graduates who leaned towards Hillary Clinton. How much did you feel that those two explanations were a satisfying account of how many of the polls had gotten it wrong? Well, I think what the pollsters said in their report, it was really an outstanding report. It included not only academics, but many actual practitioners who were willing to share 
extraordinary data sets with this group to look at what they were finding throughout the course of the campaign. I think they said in the report, and I don't remember the exact language, but they said in the report that these were some of the things that people pointed to. It's still possible that there were other sources of error that APOR wasn't able to address. I mean, some things you just really can't control. I mean, if voters change their minds very late in the campaign, as they did in Wisconsin, when you had about 13% of the electorate were late deciders and they voted disproportionately for Donald Trump. You just can't capture that in polling that usually ends, but may not this year, but usually ends on the Friday or Saturday before the Tuesday election. And of course, this year we have the additional problem of so many people voting early and absentee. But I think they suggested a number of other explanations than the two that you mentioned. They tried to look at the shy Trump voter. They weren't completely satisfied with what they found about that. They didn't think there was a lot of evidence of a shy Trump vote. But they said in the report that it was possible that there was more that they weren't seeing about that particular factor. And as I said, there were probably still other factors that could have influenced the polls in 2016. So just to focus in on the the shy voter claim, because we've been hearing a lot about it in 2020 as well, which for people who don't know, is there's this claim that a huge number of people, or at least a a significant number of people, do support President Donald Trump and will support him in the polls in 2020 and would have in 2016, but were embarrassed or too shy to tell pollsters about it. So the APOR report didn't think that that had been serious. Is that consistent with the other data you've seen since then? Yes, it is consistent. What we've seen is that there haven't been significant differences between those people who are willing to talk to a live interviewer on the phone, give their preference for the election campaign, and those who are not willing to do so, and those people who then respond anonymously on an online or internet survey overall. There don't seem to be significant differences in those two groups of people. Again, that's another problem that goes back very far in the polling world. We have the Doug Wilder Virginia gubernatorial election. We had the Tom Bradley mayoral election. And I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember the dates of either of those elections. But we thought about the fact that neither one of those people could be elected. But yet both of those people were wilder in a very conservative state in Virginia, Tom Bradley in L.A. again, but both were elected. So that's a problem that goes back quite a ways. I confess, I'm wondering right now, given the fact that you're beginning to see Biden signs and yard signs, and again, this is quite a different thing. I'm beginning to wonder whether there's a shy Biden vote this time in a lot of those industrial Midwestern states that look pretty heavily to be Trump. I mean, that's just a guess on my part, but it's just interesting Interesting. to think those reporters who are actually out in the campaign trail say they're seeing Biden signs and they hadn't a few months ago. So maybe these people are feeling more confident. But again, Biden has a very substantial lead in the polls. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard about the shy Biden effect. So that maybe we'll get that out there in this podcast. Colin, you mentioned your first answer about low response rates. I think in your essay, you cited that for Gallup and Pew, for example, in the late 90s, they had anywhere from 28 to 36%. But now if you look at, I think 2017 was what you cited in your piece, it's down to 7 9%. What is driving that and how is that affecting the accuracy of polling? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to answer pollsters in the evening when I've just finished a long <laughs> day's work. And so I don't usually answer poll questions overall. And I think there are a lot of people like me. We're just too busy. We don't want our private time invaded. And so I think a lot of people just don't want to talk to the pollsters. I mean, they're mildly interested in public opinion polls. They don't follow them the way all of us in in Washington do. But I think a lot of people just don't want to be bothered. So it's harder to get them to respond. And in terms of accuracy, how does that, the decline in survey responsiveness, impact the capacity of pollsters to come up with accurate data? 
Well, the pollsters have to weight their samples, so they're getting a, a sample that looks like America. And the best pollsters, Pew, Gallup, some of the best, are weighting by nine to 12 different variables. Now, how do you do that? You look at what the census tells us the population is made up of, and then you also look at, let's say, the American Community Survey, which is part of the census, which gives us more recent data. And the wonderful methodologist from Pew, Courtney Kennedy, and one of the other staffers at Pew in their methodological section of their website recently gave some examples of how pollsters could correct for the small number or the the fact that they had too few non-college whites in their samples in 2016. Mm. But you need to wait for that variable. But if you have too many college graduates in the sample, you can compare your data to the ACS or to the census, and you know what that data is supposed to look like. And if your sample looks off, you have to weight the data back to what the ACS or the census is telling us are the number of college-educated people in Wisconsin. Carlin, what is your sense for the 2020 polls? Do you think they've improved upon that in terms of waiting for non-college-educated whites? I know that was an issue in 2016. Do you think there's been enough improvement on that from pollsters? Well, again, I defer to Courtney Kennedy and her team at Pew. She looked at one poll, she didn't name it, but she looked at one major poll and said that they had not done enough to wait Hmm. for the the white college and non-college populations. And again, she's looking at these from a methodological standpoint much more closely than I am. And again, I think everybody agrees that this became a very big issue. People are much more sensitive to it now than in the past. And so I think most pollsters have made an effort to correct for that deficiency if in fact they believed it was one. Another problem you talk about in the essay is that the public polling landscape has grown significantly in recent years with organizations like YouGov, SurveyMonkey, Daily Coast, Morning Consult, and others joining the more established organizations like Gallup and Pew and the universities. How has the entrance of those new players impacted the quality of our polling data? I don't think it's necessarily impacted quality that much. The public polls that all of us see are actually really a small fraction of the public opinion polling that's done in the United States. Most of it is Mm. done for proprietary purposes. I think even most popular paint color, the Pantene that comes out of (laughs) surveys, are somehow used to look at what people think the hot color of paint is going to be for the spring. (laughs) And I've often wondered whether Procter & Gamble knows more about America than George Gallup, because obviously (laughs) they're in the field all the time trying to understand what their customers want. But it's Doesn't the new entrants, I mean, they're of varying quality. And again, not being a methodologist, I wouldn't want to name names, but certainly there are far more people in the field. I don't think that means we're being polled necessarily more. I I think we probably are. I'm not sure that it's affected the quality of the polls, but it's harder to keep track of them. What's interesting to me is how they generally move in tandem. Two weeks ago, we saw a couple of polls that had a much closer race than everybody else. I mean, that certainly is statistically possible. But most of the polls seem to move in tandem with one another. And they're, they're putting pretty much in the same ballpark about the 2020 results, particularly at the national level, though there's more variation at the state. It sounds like, just to sort of follow up, like based on the piece, that there is some relationship between the number of polling organizations and the relationship they have to the media such that because there's so many more entrants into the market, they're competing more among themselves for media attention. And then that's led to changes in the kinds of polling or the way that polls are presented. The media polling partnerships are here to stay. And I have often advocated perhaps a trial separation or even a divorce. Because I think the requirements of good journalism, the requirements of good survey research are very different. 
and I don't remember whether I wrote about this in the piece, but good polling takes time to try to figure out what it is you're measuring, whereas journalists properly put a premium on speed. They want to get the story. They want to get it out. And it takes time to test the kinds of questions that you're using to compare them to other questions, to questions that have been asked in the past. And again, journalists put a premium on speed. Journalists also, it seems to me, like to arrive, at least in terms of public opinion, at unambiguous conclusions, whereas so often polling reveals tentativeness, it reveals contradiction. Mm. And there are a lot of problems in the polls. They're not problems with the polls, but that journalistic media marriage just doesn't seem to be the best for the polling business. Certainly, it's, it's certainly good for journalists. They want the latest poll on the North Carolina race. We saw one today. Tomorrow, there'll be the latest poll in the Pennsylvania race, whatever it happens to be. And so they really, the pollsters, many of them really do need a media partner for their own work to shine. I know one of the other problems you mentioned in your piece was that sometimes when these polls are focused on short-term media headlines, they maybe overemphasize polarization and how divided Americans are. Do you still feel that way? And have you seen that borne out in 2020 as well? Absolutely. I mean, the negativity bias in the media is well known. A major survey was released yesterday, and I was one of a number of people commenting on the survey. And it was interesting, nothing wrong with what the lead pollster did in talking about the results, but he focused mostly on things that were negative, mostly on the deep divisions in society. But I actually found it was a very impressive, massive poll. I also found a lot of areas of public agreement, and Hmm. I wanted to talk about those, but I think the media's negativity bias has, has seeped into the polling business. So I want to start to turn our attention to 2020, but I guess I want to begin with, so you wrote this essay in 2018, and a lot of it was a reflection on polling habits behavior in 2016. So since then, which of these do you think the polling industry has corrected for, and which ones do you think are still lingering? Well, I certainly think many pollsters have tried to correct for the proper demographic sample in particular states and and nationwide from the problems that they've had in the past. So I think that they've, most posters have certainly tried to address that overall. They're using more sophisticated technologies. The polling methodology beyond what we've talked about has changed a great deal, as has the demography of the country. And you've got to be able Mm -hmm. to capture that. And that's different from what it was in in 2016, I mean, my generation's getting a lot older and sort of passing from the scene. And you've got to adjust for a lot of things every four years in an election campaign. And I think posters are very much trying to do that. You know, will they be in the field until the last possible moment, until Monday night before the polls open on Tuesday? Usually they don't poll on election day, but, but some posters will be polling on election day as they did in 2018, because those are the exit pollsters. And what they want to find out all day long is who's voted and how they voted. And of course, the exit pollsters are actually in the field right now, looking at people who said they voted early or absentee, trying to keep track of that, because that's something new that we didn't have four years ago. We didn't have coronavirus, which changed the way many people are voting. And so that's something that's brand new that pollsters have had to address in the 2020 cycle. So there are always, there are always problems, but this one is a biggie. So we, we mentioned earlier just how Biden has such a big lead in the polls. I think it was tighter earlier in the year. Is your sense of it's mainly COVID that's driving this, this big lead right now? I mean, I guess we'll obviously see once the election happens if the polls bear out, but is it just how he's handled the coronavirus that's a big issue? Or is it something else you've seen, Carlin, in the polls that suggests why Biden has such a big lead? 
It's hard to pinpoint it. Um, there are a number of factors that I think contribute to the fact that Biden's lead, at least in, since July, has been a really impressive, solid lead. And it seems to be growing in the national polls, but not necessarily in the state polls. So that's, hmm. that's something that we're watching pretty carefully. But certainly COVID has contributed to it. Early on, let's say in April and May, the president had a much higher rating on handling coronavirus than he does now. Today, only about a third of Americans approve of the the job that he's doing in all of the recent polls. And that appears to have affected one very consequential voting block, a group that votes in heavy numbers, and that is seniors. But it could also be just watching Trump up close in the first debate. You know, that debate had a very large audience. And I think Americans have long been concerned about Trump's demeanor, the way he carries himself, and that could have sealed his fate too. It's also interesting that in the polls, if you ask people what's the most important problem facing the country today, a lot of people say the economy, a lot of people say coronavirus. The economy, not surprisingly, this year isn't working for Trump, but it didn't work for Republicans in 2018 either. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that Republicans have had to confront. They haven't been able to make their case on the economy. And Trump had a very good economy, obviously, last year going into March sure. this year. And we don't know how that will affect the overall results. So that's something that's hard really to figure out what's the most important issue. We haven't seen particular changes in the panel study and the number of people who say that they're worried about coronavirus. So we certainly are seeing concerns now about a second wave that perhaps we didn't see two or three weeks ago. So it could be anxiety about coronavirus. It could be the fact that people really are worried about the economy and a the second wave of the, this disease overall. So it has, it certainly has had an effect on opinion. How to measure whether it's more important than some of these other things, I think is very hard. Trump throughout the public has disliked his demeanor and the way that he's carried himself. Biden's lead is significant in the polls, but I have seen a couple of polls uh, in recent days even that suggest this race is significantly tighter than many people are reporting. Is that within the realm of methodological honesty, or is it the case that a lot of the numbers that suggest that this is a very tight race are maybe not as rigorous as some of the others? Again, I haven't dug deeply into the methodologies and how and when these polls are being conducted. I think it's quite possible to find a range of outcomes at this particular point. As I said, the state polls show a much narrower contest than do the national polls. And I think sure. it's probably best to pay attention to the state polls at this point as we get close to the campaign. That's something that we know that Hillary Clinton did not do hmm. in 2016. They were so confident based on the probabilistic accounts from 538, Real Clear, and some of the others that suggested she had an X percent chance of winning that they just weren't doing enough polling in those key industrial Midwestern states. Clinton hadn't visited those states overall. But that was extremely important, I think, in 2016. And one of the Democratic pollsters, Stan Greenberg, referred to what the, the way the Clinton campaign did its polling and the way that they were looking at these data as malpractice. And so there, were a lot of, there was a lot of dissent in Democratic ranks about polling until the last minute. But I'm now starting to look almost exclusively in state polls. And for example, the one that came out today in North Carolina shows a tighter race than polls there showed a few weeks ago. Maybe it is tightening. It's a southern state. Two both candidates have had problems. So there is a range. If you look at the major pollsters who've been in this business for a long time, they're 
pretty close to one another overall. But as you said, one or two showed a very different race, a three-point race versus a 10-point race. That's a big difference. Two quick follow-up questions about the, the Clinton campaign in particular. Do we have a sense of why they had given up on state-level polling? And the second one, I guess, would be, will we know until after, not until after the election, whether or not the Biden campaign has corrected that mistake, or do we know that they're already making use of state-level polls? What we'll have after the election is both campaigns will probably go up to Harvard for one of those postmortem sections and they'll talk about <laughs> what, they, what they knew at different points of the campaign. We used to do that at AEI. We'd bring the winning and losing pollsters together and they would exchange, they, they literally exchanged their playbooks on one or two occasions to look at exactly what numbers they had in the daily polling that I'm sure they're doing at that point. In the 2016, the shiny new thing was analytics. And that led to the probabilistic estimates that we saw from 538 and the others. And we heard that day in and day out. And I think that the Clinton campaign may have been influenced. They may just have been overconfident about looking at those reports overall and not looking back at the more traditional, perhaps older school, take your polls up to the last minute in these key states. And again, Hillary Clinton didn't even visit some of those states. And so it just showed how confident they felt. And so I think that the Biden campaign will not make that mistake again. Both campaigns are very well funded. The Biden campaign appears to be much better funded at this point in the campaign than anybody expected. And they'll certainly have enough to do a huge amount of polling, focus group work, special studies. And I'm sure they're doing those. And Carla, just a final question about the national polls versus the state polls. I know we talked about in 2016 how the national polls are popular, but were pretty accurate. It was the state polls that were not. I guess one question, do you think that will be reflected again in 2020? And then also, is it just the case that state polls are less reliable because there's fewer resources, fewer polling groups, fewer polls being taken? Or what's behind that kind of split there? Well, there are fewer of them, certainly, than the national polls in these states. And it's very, you know, I talked about the media polling partnership, and I was pretty critical of it earlier in this discussion. But I think Many of these pollsters in states like the industrial Midwest all over the country actually need a media partner to get their results out. It's expensive to poll. A lot of media organizations have been cutting back very significantly in terms of the polling that they do. And only a few major papers in the industrial Midwest have a regular poll. And if you think about the Des Moines Register poll that we hear so much about before the primaries start, they don't poll that often because, again, it's a very expensive thing to do well. And the Milwaukee Journal poll, very important poll, Marquette University poll overall, those are very important polls, but they just don't have the resources to be in the field as often. And also, you know, again, the question in 2016 was being, was voters changing their minds at the end of the campaign? I mean, will Trump say something in this debate that makes people go back in his direction? I suppose it's possible, but there are just so many unknowns at this point in the campaign. And and state pollsters don't necessarily have the resources to do that. And that's why, contrary to what I said earlier, they need a, a media partner to help them with those kind of resources. If Trump does win this year, is that a sign that we should just kind of reorient our expectations about what polls can tell us? Like that they can only tell us so much, it's only a snapshot in time? I think it will be the death knell of the polls if mm. across the board there is just a significant large error. I haven't looked at what's happened in Australia since their last major election, which is very significant overall. And I'm sure they're doing their postmortems, but 
polls will still be done because for those who know how to understand them and look at them carefully, they'll be a very important part of campaigns. But I just can't see the industry. I can't see a lot of people doing those kinds of polls in the future. As you know, Pew and Gallup have already pulled out of the business. They don't do election polling in the way that a lot of the other pollsters do. And I think many other pollsters would decide to do that if there was a significant error in the polls this time. One question that I was hoping I'd get to sneak in would be the international dimension of the polling mistakes that we've seen, because a lot of the methodological issues that we are talking about in America seem very unique to America, like certain demographics are not getting polled. They don't have the same exposure. But the mistakes in like, you know, working class, white, non-college educated folks and, and stuff like that. but the mistakes that were made in Australia in Brexit in the French election, which were astronomical, it seems like it's all happening at once. And I guess I'm curious what's going on to explain that. Well, I think one factor is populism and the fact that and certainly in Brexit vote, they underestimated the strength of the sort of non-college, less well-educated. They had too many young people in their samples, if I remember correctly, what the postmortem suggested. Young people who tilted labor. And in fact, there were a lot of young people who didn't tilt that way, who were or tilted Brexit. I'm sorry, tilted Brexit. And there were a lot of young people who didn't lean that way and that threw the polls off. They've been very impressive in terms of their willingness to look at their mistakes. But I think we're realizing that some people have been left out. In the past, I don't know specifically what happened in Australia, but I think you could also perhaps make that case about France. Interesting. Yeah, this is fascinating, Colin. Thanks so much. We've got a kind of global perspective and also preview for 2020 for America. So we really appreciate yeah. it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And this was fun. And any other time. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. If you'd like to read Carlin's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.